great pleasure to be with you this morning. Please bear with me because of a cold. Uh, you're sharing an anniversary with me today because on the 30th of June, 32 years ago in 1958, I entered the United States Army as a second lieutenant of infantry. A lot of people... <clears throat> Now that I've become chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, a lot of people say to me, well, did you know back then that you would be the chairman? Was that your ambition? I said, my ambition was to finish college, get a job. And at that time, $55 a week looked pretty good, and that's why I went in the Army. And then the other question they usually ask was, was there a role model who you patterned your life after and who gave you the secrets of success that allowed you to become four-star general and chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff. I said, well, yes, there was a role model. He was my first platoon sergeant. And when I joined my first platoon in Germany, brand new second lieutenant, he was waiting for me. And he said, Lieutenant, my name is Sergeant Tyree. I am your role model. <laughs> and he said, now, everybody in this platoon knows more than you do. And so you just watch us for a while, and when you think you're about half smart, then you can start taking over. And if you do it that way, and if you're very good, and if you work very hard, and if you study hard, we will follow you. And if you're real good, you might make first lieutenant. Well, I remembered those lessons very well. And as I tell people who ask me, my role model was not only Sergeant Tyree, but everybody else in that platoon, and work hard in what you're doing today. Work to be the best second lieutenant so you can go and become the best first lieutenant and everything else will take care of itself. Now I'm pleased to be back here for the third time. In 1988, I was here as National Security Advisor to the President. Last year I was here as Commander-in-Chief of all Army forces in the United States. And this year I'm back as Chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff. I don't know if there is something in here you should draw a lesson about. Uh, the lesson I draw is move fast, be gone before the posse shows up. <laughs> I always like to talk about days when I was National Security Advisor, and let me just say a word about that again today, because you had President Reagan here the night before last. And I worked for President Reagan for two years. And every day I would go into his office at about 9.30 in the morning and tell him about the world, tell him what was going on around the world, told him the challenges that were facing us, options that were out there, problems he had to deal with. And I did that every day for two years. And the last time I did it was on the 20th of January, 1989, Inauguration Day. And as I walked in that morning, it was his last opportunity to look at the Oval Office. My report was the shortest I had ever given because I merely said, Mr. President, the world is quiet today. And indeed, it was quiet and relatively peaceful. We had a ceasefire in the Persian Gulf. We were implementing a treaty to destroy nuclear weapons. We had just completed the third meeting with the Soviets in less than a year. Peace seemed to be settling in in Southern Africa. It was quiet in Southeast Asia. There was still turmoil. The world was not completely at peace, but it was a time 17 months ago on that January day of great hope. So we left office together on a note of great hope, but little did President Reagan realize, or did I realize, that a revolution was about to break out? Not a revolution of war, but a revolution of peace, a revolution of freedom, a revolution of democracy that is now 
come to be known as the revolution of 1989 and the revolution that is continuing into 1990. With Eastern Europe free in a matter of months, the Berlin Wall that I spent so many years studying about and training to fight at disappearing before my eyes, a soon-to-be-reunified Germany, Namibia free, Nelson Mandela free and in our own country, Soviet forces not attacking to the West but going home to the East. In our own hemisphere, Nicaragua free. It hasn't been all peaceful. In Romania and Panama, it took armed force to bring freedom to those two countries. What do all these revolutionary events have in common? What they have in common is they represent the triumph of freedom, the triumph of self-determination, the triumph of democratic values and individual rights over the forces of tyranny. In the last several months, I've gone to meetings of the Joint Session of Congress to hear world leaders. And I heard Lech Walesa not too long ago, and I heard the new president of Czechoslovakia, Mr. Havok, not too long ago, and earlier this week I heard Nelson Mandela, a prisoner, a playwright, a shipyard worker. And they all came to our Congress to speak of Jefferson and Washington, of our Declaration of Independence, of our Constitution. They told how those words, those American thoughts, that beacon of American hope, penetrated the thickest iron curtain and the deepest corner of a jail cell. And Mandela said it the best. He said, it would have been immoral for me not to have gone to jail. We could not have known of Jefferson and of your Bill of Rights and not have been moved to act as your people acted. So our 200-year-old documents are still showing the way of hope to the peoples of the world. But words aren't enough. Our founding fathers and the world leaders I've just described and leaders around the world did more than just say or study these words. They lived them. They put their lives, their fortunes, and their sacred honor at risk to do so. The American nation has always been willing to put American lives, American fortune, and America's sacred honor at risk to defend what we believe in. You see, it has been our willingness to serve as the leader of the Western world that has helped bring about the revolution of 1989. It has been the coming together of American leadership, of American purpose, and of American power to the benefit of mankind. We have much to be proud of in this country because it's been our values, our political system, our economic system, and yes, our military power that has provided the shield for democracy to flourish. None are prouder of these achievements than those Americans who wear the uniform of the armed forces and are serving this nation around the world. And now that the world is quiet, the role of Americans in uniform really won't change that much. There will be fewer of us needed. We will spend less money. We will be serving in different places. Our traditional enemies are disappearing. But the world is still unstable. The world still has uncertainty and danger in it. The world is still relying on American purpose and American power. I am still called upon to send American volunteers in harm's way. And I can't tell you how proud I am to serve as the representative of those two million young men and women in uniform. You, too, are sentinels in this fight. 
you too have responsibilities to protect what has been achieved. You have the responsibility to be good citizens, to seek office, to volunteer, to serve those in our nation less fortunate, to perhaps even serve in the armed forces of the United States, to raise children, to do the very best you can to keep this country strong, to make sure that America's beacon of hope continues to shine throughout the world. Thank you so very much. What is the future of both U.S. involvement in Panama and the Guadalupe Hidalgo Treaty to return the canal to the Panamanians? I didn't hear the second part. With respect to U.S. forces in Panama, we have uh, drawn down considerably since the incursion. We will be below our post-crisis levels by the end of August, and all American troops will be out of Panama by the uh, 31st of December 1999 when the Panama treaties come into effect, and I expect there to be no U.S. forces at that time. Over the next several years, we will continually draw down uh, as the security situation improves and the people of Panama wishes to draw down. Uh, so all American troops will eventually leave Panama. I didn't hear the second question, sir. It was sir. the canal, would you? I mean, are we going ahead with returning the canal to the Panamanians? Uh, yes. Returning the canal to Panama. Panama. Canal, yes, there's no question about that. There's no change in our obligations under the Panama Canal Treaty, which is to turn canal over to the Panamanians. Uh, we still retain some national security interest in the efficient and safe functioning of the canal, but it will be returned to the people of Panama. Thank you very much. Uh, I'm Irene Kaplan from Silver Spring, Maryland, and I'm, I'm sure you've heard plenty of times President Reagan saying about Gorbachev to trust but verify, and I was wondering what you think, what your opinion is about trusting Gorbachev and whether we've been verifying enough. I, I guess the question is helping Gorbachev. Whether, how you feel about trusting him and whether we've been verifying. Trusting him? Ah. One, of the, one of the President's favorite expressions, I'm not sure if he used it the other evening, was trust but verify, dovayeno pravoyai. Did he say it? Did he use it? Yeah. He loves it. <laughs> he used to use it all the time. It would drive the Russians nuts. We'd sit in a meeting, and the president would say it at the beginning of the meeting, and Mr. Gorbachev would go like that, and the president would say it again, and Mr. Gorbachev would go like that. And then about the fourth time he'd say it, Mr. Gorbachev would smile a little. It became something of an inside joke, but it was a serious expression of policy. We're willing to trust, but we must trust under conditions where we can verify, where we can prove it. Our security is too important simply to be left in the hands of someone else. So we reach out a hand to you. We want to work with you. We want to cooperate with you. But we have to make sure that the deals we make, the arms control agreements we enter into, truly can be verified so that both sides can feel safe. I don't want my Soviet counterpart, General Moiseyev, to ever be concerned about the safety of his nation, and I don't ever want to be concerned about the safety of my nation. That is a mutual interest. And with both of us having that mutual interest, we can work together and make deals and try to keep that security level common between us at much lower levels of expenditure and at much smaller force levels. So uh, trust but verify. Uh, he had another version of that, which was uh, trust but cut the cards. I believe in it. General Powell, could you tell us what your prediction of the security issues that we'll be facing 
the America in the 1990s will be in terms of not uh, the Soviet threat seems to be receding. China, uh, the environment, how and how do you see yeah. the the military involved? I don't see any immediate uh, military threats to the nation. Um, Europe, the threat will be receding, and I think there will be little for us to concern ourselves with. What I have to concern myself with is not so much a threat, but the capability that exists in certain parts of the world. For example, uh, I, I support what's happening in the Soviet Union, but when it's all over, the Soviet Union will have tens of thousands of nuclear weapons, and it will remain the only nation on the face of the Earth that has the capability of destroying the United States in about 28 to 29 minutes. I can never forget that. I don't care who's in charge. I can never forget that. Whatever their intent may be, however peaceful it may be, I cannot forget that they have that capability. After the Soviet Union is reformed, they will still have the major military power on the Soviet, uh, in Soviet Union and on the Eurasian landmass. I cannot forget that. In the Middle East, we have a very troubled and uncertain situation. I don't expect to commit U.S. forces there, but I submit that as long as we have strong U.S. forces in being, the likelihood of us having to commit them there is much smaller. There are armies in the, uh, in the Middle East uh, that have more tanks than we saw in the North African campaigns of World War II. I can't forget that. Uh, in the nine months that I've been chairman, I have had to commit U.S. forces in Panama. I had to put them on alert uh, for a situation in El Salvador where Americans are trapped in a hotel. I had to use them late one night to help Mrs. Aquino in the Philippines. I have American forces standing on guard in the Persian Gulf, still along the German border and along the border between the two Koreas. And I have a Marine amphibious group and Navy ships standing off the west coast of Africa in case American citizens are in danger in Liberia. So the world is still uncertain. And what I have to make sure is that we have proud, ready volunteers ready to deal with any challenges to our vital interest. Thank you all very much. Thank you.